Well, our text this morning is one that you might know very well, but it's full of surprises anyway. So let's turn, if you would like to, to the Gospel of John and to chapter 1 and the first three verses of John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was made. I'm sorry, (laughs) that didn't sound right. And without him was not anything made that was made. There we go. Thank you very much. Father, we ask this morning that you would give my tongue uh, more nimbleness than it has shown so far this morning and that you would cause your word to live among us. We believe it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it accomplishes what you want to do. Jesus taught us that the confidence of heaven is in the Bible, that the salvation of the souls of men and women is entirely a product of their interactions with the Bible. So do what you've purposed to do, and we look to you with confidence and with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a a wonderful clarity and also a wonderful simplicity to the Gospel of John. I mean, it's not for nothing that the Gospel of John is often distributed in booklet form during evangelistic efforts and campaigns. And it's precisely because the deity of Jesus Christ is most clearly set forth in this gospel, in this marvelous book, that it is distributed in that way. But behind the simplicity of this gospel is also an astonishing depth and an astonishing profundity. I love that saying about John's gospel that a child can bathe in it, but an elephant can swim in it. John's gospel gives a a beautifully simple and clear presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, John says at the close or at the end of his gospel in the 20th chapter of John that he wrote the things down that he wrote so that the reader might believe in Jesus as the Son of God and as the Savior. And yet, John's gospel is astonishingly deep and wonderfully profound. And so again in John 20, he says that by believing, we may have eternal life, which is not just life as we know it now rumbling on forever. I can't imagine anything more horrible than life as we know it now going on and on forever. But it's rather a different kind of life, a different quality of life that goes on and on forever. It's a life full of grace and glory. It's the kind of life that you don't ever get tired of or bored with, precisely because you'll never get to the bottom of it and say, well, I've seen all there is to see and I've done all there is to do, and now I'm just bored. You'll never, you'll never know that in eternal life. And so John's gospel does for us two things. It is evangelistic. It shows lost men and women who need the Lord Jesus, why they need him, and who Jesus is. 
And so we shouldn't be embarrassed or reticent to invite our unbelieving friends and neighbors and house guests, perhaps, to worship on these Sunday mornings during Advent uh, and Christmas, because we would, we would want them to encounter the living Christ. And we should trust that God will use His Word, and particularly in this gospel, to draw men and women to Christ. And yet at the same time, John edifies those of us who are believers. If we put the time and effort into the study of John's gospel, we, we say with Augustine, I see the depths, Father, but I can't see the bottom. It's amazingly profound. And it's interesting, isn't it, how John starts his gospel and where John starts his gospel. You look at the other three gospels. Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. Both Matthew and Luke take you a little further back, and they begin with Jesus' parents and how a virgin conceived and bore a son by the Holy Spirit. But John begins with the pre-incarnate Christ before the beginning of the world. And for that reason, Calvin said, the other gospels show us Christ's body. John's gospel shows us Christ's soul. St. Augustine in his uh, City of God relates the story of an early Christian leader named Simplicianus who eventually became a bishop of Milan. And Simplicianus had a pagan friend that he used to like to quote. And this pagan friend of his was utterly amazed at the depth and the profundity of the opening lines of John's gospel. Now this man was a pagan, he was a Platonist, and during that time, Platonism or Neoplatonism was the chief rival religion for the intelligent people in the Roman Empire. And so this man was very educated, very learned, very intelligent. And he asked, who penned these words? And where did he get his teaching and his education? And he was told that the writer was St. John the Apostle, and that he had been a fisherman before Christ had called him to discipleship. And this man was amazed, and he said, these words should be written in letters of gold and hung up in all the churches in the most prominent place. So this learned pagan understood the depths of the claims being made in these opening verses of John. This Advent, I want us to focus on the first chapter of John's gospel. You see, in our day, as in John's day, the identity of Jesus is frequently questioned, and there are assertions made about who Jesus is or was. And sometimes this happens in a very direct way, but more often it happens in an indirect way. And one of the ways that it happens, it, it indeed has happened to me several times within the last few months in my interactions with people online, is that people first presume certain things about the identity of Jesus, things which they don't really make plain. They don't come out and say, now these are the things I'm assuming about Jesus, therefore, da, 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 da. And then they try and interpret some aspect of Jesus' teaching through the lens of their assumptions about his identity. 
So let me, give, let me give you an example. For instance, you will have people arguing for a certain position on the morality or the permissibility of a certain practice or a certain idea or a certain belief. And these people who are doing the arguing are trying to overturn the traditional Christian view on the subject. And when you approach them with, well, the Bible says da-da-da-da-da, they say, hey, Jesus never said anything about this subject. And so therefore, we must conclude that Jesus wasn't that concerned about it, or he would have said something about it in these gospels that you say, give us the story of his life. And so if it was as important as you Christians say it is, then don't you think Jesus would have addressed it? He would have said something about it? Oh, sure, I know that other parts of the Bible speak on those issues, but those were just men. You say Jesus was special, and Jesus didn't say anything about it. Well, what assumptions are they making about who Jesus is when they do things like this and when they say things like this? Well, they're assuming that Jesus began to exist when he was conceived in his mother's womb, and they're assuming that Jesus ceased to exist in any meaningful way as far as direct control over the events of history is concerned when he died. Now, they're quite willing to have him like a ghost somewhere out there, but ghosts don't do much. And so whether the question is reincarnation or sexual and gender ethics or the possibility that there are other illuminated master teachers besides Jesus but like Jesus, wherever that's concerned, if Jesus didn't speak about it directly, therefore they think they can believe whatever they want and uh, they presume that Jesus is probably on their side, actually. The one thing I notice when people make this argument, oh, Jesus never said anything about that, so it must not be important. I, I like to point out that Jesus never said anything about rape or felony home invasion either. And are you presuming that Jesus is in favor of those things because he said, didn't say, oh, by the way, don't rape anybody and don't break any, anybody's home and steal? No. They never press their own logic in that way. But if Jesus existed as a conscious, self-aware person before he was born, and if he was instrumental in setting up the world, and in giving the Old Testament, the scriptures, to the Jews, whom he called into being as a unique and distinct and chosen people, and if he continues not only to exist, but actually to reign over every detail of the universe, including the placing of his own words in the mouths and the pens of his authorized spokesmen, the apostles, well, then we have to take into account all the information on these issues found in our Old Testaments and in the rest of the New Testament. We have to conclude that Jesus was there at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. We have to conclude that Jesus was there and was speaking through the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah and David in the Psalms. We have to presume that Jesus is still here and that he speaks to us in the scriptures as much as in the Gospels, in the, in the epistles and in the book of Acts and in the book of Revelation. 
You see, this idea of setting Jesus against the Old Testament or, or setting Jesus against Paul in particular, these people are fond of that, is really a sub-Christian idea, and I counsel you never to fall for it. The idea that all you have to be concerned about is the teachings of the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can dismiss the rest of the Bible as merely flawed ideas about men is bogus. And it doesn't even square with what Jesus says about himself in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he says things like, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him because they said he's making himself equal with God. And they were right. He was. And he wept over Jerusalem. And he claimed to be the one who had sent prophet after prophet to Jerusalem to try and get them to repent for over a thousand years. Well, that's not a very sane thing to say if Jesus began existing when his mother conceived him. Jesus is the one who said to his disciples in the Gospel of John, I have more to teach you, but you're not ready for it yet. But when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you in all truth, he will cause you to remember everything I've said, and he will declare to you all the things about me that are to come. So there you have the apostles writing the Gospels, and then you have the letters and then you have the revelation. And Jesus said, I'm taking care of it. I've got more to say, and I'll say it there, and I'll make sure you get it right. So who was this Jesus, really? This opening 18 verses of John's gospel tells us, it's often called the prologue of John's gospel. And John shows us who this Jesus really is. And John begins in an interesting way. He says, in the beginning. Now, do you know of any other book in the Bible that starts with, in the beginning? Genesis, that's exactly right. And, and this is an intentional reminder of something. It's an intentional reminder of the opening of the book of Genesis and what was happening there. Genesis 1.1 opens with the words, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, that phrase, in the beginning, is just one word, bereshit. As a matter of fact, the Jews didn't have separate titles for most of their biblical books. And so, for instance, the book that we know as Exodus, when I open up my Hebrew Bible in my office on my desk, the book is called Exodus on one side in English, and then there's a Hebrew, a couple of Hebrew words there. And the Hebrew words say, Ve'elohei Shemot, which translates, these are the names. And that's because the book of Exodus begins with, these are the names. So they just took the first three words, and uh, the first two words in Hebrew, the first three in English, and, and they said, this book we're going to call, these are the names. And Leviticus isn't called Leviticus, it's called Vieracha, which is, or now called, because the opening sentence of the, the reads in Hebrew, now called Moses and spoke Yahweh. You see, Hebrew is a lot like Yoda talk. Words in funny places there are. Hard to translate into English, it sometimes is. Well, Genesis is called Bereshit, in the beginning. 
And so any Jewish reader picking up John's gospel would have gone, oh, he's referencing what happened in Genesis 1.1. He would have immediately been transported back to the beginning of the Bible to Genesis 1.1, and he would hear in his head, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John is counting on that, and he's building on it. And he says, in the beginning was the word. Another way of saying it is, in the beginning, the word was already there. Before the heavens and the earth were created, the word was living, <coughs> was intelligently acting, was doing stuff. Genesis takes us to the beginning and then goes forward. John takes us to the beginning and then goes backward. He takes us behind the beginning. He takes us to the time before time. Why is this being called the word? Well, the Greek word for the word is the logos. And that was a term that was really rich in meaning, both to Jewish and to Greek speakers. For the Jews in Jesus' day, <coughs> excuse me, they refused to speak the covenant name of God. They refused to say the word Yahweh because they were afraid of violating the third commandment. And so they said the, the best way to never take the name of the Lord in vain is to never speak the name of the Lord. And so, for instance, when I learned Hebrew in seminary, I had a professor, uh, she was a woman named Johanna Boss, she was Dutch, she had lived in Holland under the Nazi occupation, she had been in the resistance, she had actually shot a Nazi, and she was the kind of woman who you could look at and say she could probably still shoot a Nazi or a bad Hebrew student, and so you know, I'm not afraid of very many people, but I was afraid of Johanna Boss, and I worked really hard in her class, and she had we have ways of making you learn these things, and we learned them. And, and I learned that whenever I was reading Hebrew, and I came to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I was not to pronounce it, because she had been trained by uh, conservative Jews. I was to substitute instead the word Adonai, which means Lord. And that's what the Jews do. They, they read the, the Bible, and they and they get to the word Yahweh and they substitute Adonai. So I remember translating the, the challenge that Elijah had laid out to the people of Israel at Mount Carmel. If the Lord is God, follow him. And I remember the first time I composed a Hebrew sentence in my, in my head and, and then looked at the text and said, I did it right. Im Adonai Elohim, if the Lord is God. But if you look at the text in Hebrew, it says, Im Yahweh Elohim. If Yahweh is God. So we, we substitute with the, the divine name. There were other substitutions, though. There still are other substitutions. They say Adonai when they read the biblical text, but they say other things, too. Uh, when an Orthodox Jew sings Psalm 127, even today, they substitute God's covenant name, Yahweh, which is in the Hebrew text, with Hashem, which means the name. 
And in English, that psalm starts with, unless the Lord, unless Yahweh builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. And the Jews sing, im Hashem lo yivne bias, unless the name builds a house, those that build it labor in vain. Uh, just for fun, I put a, a great video on, on uh, Facebook, on the church page, of a Jewish, uh, an Orthodox Jewish choir called the Shira Choir, and they're singing that psalm, and it's like a four-minute uh, song, and it's, it is absolutely, they just rock it. I mean, it is really great, and you just see the joy on their faces, and, and, and they're singing the psalms of David. They're singing the word of God. It's wonderful. Well, there was another substitute, at least there was in John's day, and that is ha-dabar, the word. Instead of calling, instead of pronouncing the covenant name of God, they would say the word, the word. It's not used by Jews today precisely because of John's gospel. They dropped it. But in John's day and in Jesus' day, it was. So when a Jew saw this, in the beginning was the word, it would have immediately said, okay, God. In the beginning, God. Well, to the Greek mind, this was a term of philosophy. And it, and it indicated the, the rational, creative principle that produced order out of primitive chaos. It was the rational mind that ruled the universe behind the scenes. That was the logos. It also referred to the spoken word. And not to the word itself, but to the meaning conveyed. It was an expression then of personality. My words are the clearest expression of myself. The closest I can come to communicating my mind to you is with my words. You will not know me. You will not know what I desire. You will not know what I think or what I believe is true or good or right without some form of communication from me. Now, I could communicate like an animal does with facial expressions or postures or gestures or inarticulate noises, but that's very imprecise. We've got this little Yorkie poo, this little black Yorkie poo, His name is, her name is Minnie, and when she wants something, we call it humming. She, she comes and she sits down and she goes, and then you've got to go through the Rolodex of things she might want until she gives you the signal that you've hit the right one. Do you need to go outside and go potty? Are you hungry? Are you hate Nova? You know, what is it that you want? And then you go chicken, and she's like, ah, and she freaks out because she wants chicken. It, but it's hard to tell what she wants. You know she wants something. Well, people could communicate like that, but it's not very efficient. No, we like words. And, and if we're really interested in communicating, we craft our words carefully and give them precise meanings and nuances. So without the spoken word, you don't know what you need to know. Likewise, God most clearly reveals himself, his thoughts, his plans, his desires through the word and the acts 
of the Word. It was the Word, the second person of the Trinity, who produced the Word, this, to give us enduring instruction we could study together. So John is saying, before the beginning of the world was this rational, creative, communicating person, this being. But you're led to, you stop and you ask yourself, but who or what is he? What is his nature? What's his identity? What's his relationship to God as God is described in Genesis 1? And John tells us, and these next few sentences are like a hand grenade. They're a theological hand grenade. They're a roadside bomb. They blow up all kinds of people's ideas about God and about who God is and about what God wants. They're amazingly powerful, amazingly deep. There's a reason it took as long to iron these things out as it took after God gave us the Bible. And John starts by giving us two extremely important things. He tells us, first of all, the word was with God. Now that word with, as it's phrased in the Greek, is also really pregnant with meaning. It literally means towards God, facing God, inclined towards God. Some scholars have suggested the idea of at home with God, like dwelling in God's house. Some scholars have suggested that this indicates an intimacy between God and the Word. Some have suggested it could be translated as the Word was face-to-face with God. You know, it's interesting. I never realized this until I was doing my research for this sermon, but I was listening to a a Scottish professor named Sinclair Ferguson, and, and he noted that one of the universals of Western culture is that you are not to look into the eyes of another person for any length of time unless you are absolutely committed in love to that person, unless we have a, an intimate fellowship with that person. Only then are we permitted to gaze into their eyes for longer periods of time. And here we have the Word in intimate fellowship with God, face to face with God, gazing into his eyes for all eternity, so to speak. And the word has some sort of identity then that's separate from God. Now, this is a mystery because there is only one God. Nothing could be clearer than that from the scriptures. There is only one God. That's the first thing Jewish children learn as their Hebrew lessons. It's called the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is one God. And that New Testament does not overturn that teaching. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is over all and in all and through all. One. Nothing could be clearer. And this one God created the heavens and the earth and everything that exists. Once again, the scriptures are crystal clear on that. And yet John is saying, in the beginning, the word was already there, which means he isn't a created thing because the beginning is when all the created things were created, including the angels and and the demons and everything else. So he's an uncreated being 
who is with God, but God is the only uncreated being allowed to exist in this equation. And then John tosses in the theological hand grenade. Not only is this being, this person, this word with God, and therefore somehow distinct from God, the word is God. The word was God. Wait, 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 wait. There's, there's one God, right? Right. And the word was with God, right? Which means he's distinct somehow from God, right? Right. And the word is God. Yes. But there's only one God. Right. Now, just to press the point home here a little bit, John adds what he adds in verse 3. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John said in John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So this word, this logos person, is the God spoken of in Genesis 1.1 but he's also somehow distinct from the God spoken of in Genesis 1.1. And there is only one God, and this word is that God, but this word also is with that God. Are you confused? It is completely understandable if you are. It literally took the church 450 years to hammer out all the important details of these things. Ben gets to study all this stuff in great detail and be ready for ordination exams and know what Nestorianism and Sabellianism and Arianism and Eutychianism and all these other errors are. I learned it and forgot it, but uh, he has to learn it and keep it for a little while. And God, the devil rather, during that time raised up heretics right and left to try and derail the church as it was figuring all of this out. And some of those heretics really came close to winning. And especially when emperors and politicians like Constantine got involved. Man, the the heretics almost won. One of the, the great heroes of this era, a man that I personally just, I can't wait to get to heaven and meet him and just say, thank you. Thank you for being faithful, is a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was an African. He was from the upper Nile area, in the, the area that today is Sudan and Ethiopia. And his enemies called him the Black Dwarf. So he was this little dark-skinned guy. And as bad as cancel culture is in our day, in that day it was worse. Because getting canceled in that day could get you exiled to a foreign country or could even get you killed. And Athanasius was exiled five different times. Those five different times add up to 17 years of his life that he was exiled. And he could have been executed at several points had the authorities found him and arrested him. At one point, he's on a ship going up the Nile, and some soldiers are coming by, walking towards the, up the Nile. And and they're behind the boat, and, and they call to the to Athanasius on the ship. Have you seen Athanasius? And Athanasius goes, yes, he's just ahead of you. Hurry up and you'll get him. And so they went chucking up the thing and he floats up the river. I mean, there's wonderful stories about this man and his life. But man, it was dark during those times. And it looked like the devil might win. At one point, one of his friends said, Athanasius, 
the whole world is against you. And Athanasius said, then Athanasius is against the whole world. And so he stood until he won. And we have a document that he wrote today called the Athanasian Creed that lays out all of these things in detail. There is one God, but this one God is a unique and a complex being. He is one God who exists in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a a wonderful ancient illustration of this truth. It's called the scutum fidei. There's a slide of it up there. And I went ahead and put it, since we don't have two TVs work, and I went ahead and put it on Facebook so that you can look at it in greater detail as well. Scutum fidei is Latin. It just means the shield of faith. And in the center is the word God. And then there's balls that are in a triangle. One for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Holy Spirit. And we trace the lines on the scutum fidei. See, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and then there's lines on the outside, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, but they're all God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And we get hints of this in Genesis 1, don't we? When we go back and we read it with new eyes through John 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and we find that the Spirit of God, so already there's two, the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep, and then each day God is pictured in Genesis 1 having this little committee meeting to plan the day's work. And God says, let us do such and such today. And behold, it's so. Now, it would be forgivable if you thought, well, you know, God was just talking out his plans with the angels. But you can't, you can't hold on to that when you get to day six. Because on the sixth day, it's clear that God's not talking to angels. He's talking to himself. And he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, plural. That's Genesis 1.26. And then God does it. And then then Genesis 1.27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there it's singular. So it's plural, and then it's singular. It's uh, one, and then it's many. And we find out in in John 1 what was only hinted at in Genesis 1. The true and living God is a social being in his very essence. And, And the word is God. He is light of light, very God of very God, begotten and not made of the very same essence as the Father by whom all things came into being in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He's God. And then it gets worse, because he's also man. He's God? Okay, that's hard enough. But now he's man? You can see why people have a hard time with this. Why religious people have a hard time with this. Most of the people I know in other religions, and I know many of them, 
are happy to have Jesus as a prophet. I've got Muslim friends who I esteem, who I love talking to, educated, intelligent people. They're fine with Jesus as a prophet. Matter of fact, they they tell us, you you just get Jesus wrong. We really got Jesus right. He's a great guy. We love him. He's just a prophet. And the next prophet that came after him was greater. That was Muhammad. So, you know, you guys are you guys are messing with Jesus here. As a matter of fact, they believe that Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, he'll be preaching Islam. They believe that. Some would like to call him, you know, especially theological liberals, oh, he's a, an itinerant preacher and social critic. New Agers like to think of him as a guru or some sort of semi-divine being who is very special and very rare, but not totally unique. There were others. There is perhaps a great one sent every thousand years or so to reveal spiritual truth and bring enlightenment. That's Jane Fonda's religion. Some are happy even to have a god up there somewhere. Not, not too close, mind you. He's, he's minding his own business. He's not poking his nose too far into your business. And, and he's just smiling down benevolently on his silly little creatures. But they don't want God the only begotten Son of God. The infinite who somehow squeezed into a human body and still remained fully God. The unspeakable, terrible holiness that will not look on sin and simply dismiss it, united with the tenderness and love that redeeming sinners are given by assuming their nature, setting it right, suffering unspeakable humiliation and horrors in order to win their pardon, and then healing their natures in order to give them a greater glory than they would have had had Adam not fallen. Think about that for a minute. The glory that the redeemed in Christ have is a greater glory than Adam would have had had he not fallen. They're happy with a Christ who would say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life, and you can come to the Father through me if you want, or you can try another equally valid path. They're happy to have that Jesus. But they don't want a Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. The the words in John 1 are some of the most radical words in history. If they are not true, it is rankest blasphemy. If they are true, they are among the most precious treasures of the human race. Let me just close with a a true story of how this worked out in my own life one time. In In the late 90s, my wife and I moved to Minneapolis and we bought Uh, we moved to a suburb of St. Paul called Woodbury and we bought one of these duplexes and it was it was a great deal Um, but it was basically two houses stuck together and the dividing wall was the garages and the person who occupied the other side of the duplex was a wonderful woman who had been born in Iran and had fled to the United States. Her name was Afog and I actually just looked her up. She's still alive now. She's in her 80s. She's moved but she still lives in Minneapolis, Afog Mohajeri. And Afog, who had been born in Iran, was a Baha'i. 
Now, if you've never heard of the Baha'i religion, probably the most famous person in America that I know of that's embraced that religion was John Denver. He was a Baha'i. And the Baha'i believe in God, as we would call God the Father, or God as the Jews or the Muslims in particular understand God, and they believe that that God sends what they call manifestations of God every thousand years or so to human beings as we progress and develop and are capable of getting more truth. So uh, the latest one they say was a little guy that was born in Iran in about 1830 and died in about 1908, and his name is Baha'u'llah. And, and they say that God sends these manifestations of God. Buddha was a manifestation of God, they say. Moses was. Jesus was. Muhammad was. And now the latest one is Baha'u'llah. And th this religion, of course, was born in Iran, and it's an Islamic area, and they did not like him, and they persecuted those people. Afog's husband actually died as a result of persecution of the Baha'is. She managed to make it to America and with her daughter, and she was my next-door neighbor. Now, the Baha'i faith is a missionary faith, just like Christianity. So Afog and I were introduced to each other. I found out her story, and she found out mine. I was in seminary, and so I was like, okay, we're going to convert each other. Who's, who wins, okay? And so we had this wonderful time together of discussion, and I'd go blow the snow off of her side of the driveway, and she'd go sweep the clippings off of my side. One time I broke into her backyard and mowed her lawn because she couldn't get her started. She didn't even notice. It was hilarious. But we had this wonderful relationship for a while. And she invited my wife and I over for lunch one Sunday afternoon. She made this wonderful drink that was made with vinegar and cucumbers and sugar water. And it was this cold Persian drink. It, was, it sounds gross, but it was absolutely wonderful. And then she made us these rice things. It looked like she took perfectly good rice and burned it to a crisp in the bottom of the pan and threw it on a plate and said, eat that. I wasn't that big of a fan of that. But, but we got to talking. And she was explaining to us about how the Baha'i faith and the Christian faith really mesh wonderfully. And that we should, we should esteem each other, which I was like fine with that. But, but I shouldn't be afraid to investigate the, the claims of the Baha'i faith because Jesus was a manifestation of God. And she said, we, we just got done with Christmas. We, we celebrate his birth. We read his, the birth stories out of the Bible, and we appreciate them. And, and Muhammad was a manifestation of God, so we respect the Muslims. And, and, and just, it's just that Bahalua is the latest one. And I couldn't ever pin her down on what a manifestation of God was. It was more than a prophet, but less than a God. But whatever it was, we started talking, and I said, you, you're not understanding what Christianity teaches. I said, you think Jesus was a manifestation of God. I believe Jesus is God. And she got this look on her face of shock. And she went, oh. And, and then the shock turned to a kind of a, a, a quick look of revulsion. The, the idea that the, that the ineffable, unapproachable God would, was okay if he sent people, but if he came himself, that was just not acceptable to a fog. And most of our conversations about religion 
ended after that. And she was a little bit less friendly and open after that. You see, they're happy. People are happy to have a guru in the constellation of gurus. But when you say, no, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is over all, through all, and in all, and only through him can you escape the wrath of God. Well, then, all bets are off. They don't want to hear that. That's our message. That's what we've got to proclaim. That this Jesus, this baby in a manger, was way more than a baby in a manger. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer.